sort of in between time, between Christmas, or after Christmas and between sermon series, we're going to be spending one week looking at a passage that's very near and dear to my heart. It's uh, probably my favorite passage in the Bible. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. The passage is deep, it's rich, it's full of theological truth, and in one week, truthfully, we could never uncover all of it. But in this one week, ultimately, we're going to be looking at the truth that the text teaches that because we are Christians, because we know God, we have a new motive, we're a new creation, and we have a new mission. Intuitively, we're going to be looking at this in three points. A new motive, a new creation, and a new mission. Let me pray for us and we'll get started studying God's word. Father God, we're thankful for today. God, thank you that you would give us a place to gather. God, thank you that you would give us the means to gather. Thank you that you would give us your word. Father, that we can know you. We can have a personal relationship with you. God, I ask that you would make your word clear. I ask that you would make your word apply deeply into our lives. God, that it would change who we are, the way that we relate to you, the way that we know you. Father, would this be something that sets the tone for our year and that changes the way that we think about our relationship with you? We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're turning to the passage, let's go ahead and locate where we are in the Bible, where we are in the redemptive narrative. Second Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the New Testament church in the city of Corinth. In this second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul is defending himself against a group of opponents, a group of heretics that have come up in the church. These folks have very humbly chosen to call themselves the super apostles, and the super apostles were a group of people that thought that they had an elevated status, an elevated spiritual standing, and they thought that they were better than everyone else in the church. They even wanted to delegitimize the work of other people who claimed to be apostles, so they wanted to challenge Paul. They wanted to challenge his ministry, his work, everything that he had done up to that point. So, here in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, Paul defends his ministry by explaining what foundationally led him to do this work in the first place. He's essentially telling the Corinthians that, here's why the super apostles are wrong. Here's why I did everything that I did in the first place. And that's what brings us here to the text. So without further ado, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 21. This is God's word. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We'll start out by looking at how when Christians know God, we have a new motive. And I think it's fascinating to look at people's motives. Because you know how sometimes we just won't do something until we have a good enough reason to? Over Thanksgiving, on my way back from South Florida to Tallahassee, I stopped by my girlfriend's house to visit her family. And while I was there, she wanted, her younger brother wanted to hang out with me, and he wanted to play a few games of chess with me. Unfortunately, since coming to college, I have spent way too much time playing chess, but I've gotten pretty good at it. So wanting to spare his ego, I let him know that. In response, he walked back to his room and vindictively showed me a big trophy he won at a chess tournament when he was six years old. So I said, game on. And after he'd lost four games in a row, he decided to call it quits. And while we were putting away the pieces, I told him, hey man, you're really good, definitely need to keep on practicing. I'm not ever going to forget what he told me. He stopped putting the pieces away, and he looked me dead in the eyes and said, oh, I'm going to keep practicing until I can destroy you. <laughs> Suddenly, chess practice for him wasn't about enjoying the game anymore or wanting to get better at it. It was, and it still is, about trying to destroy me. And eventually he will, but then what? I think that's a question we've all asked ourselves at some point or another about our long-term hopes and dreams. Then what? We all have long-term hopes and aspirations, things that we want to achieve, we want to build families, have, sex, have successful careers. We want to have hopes of building ministries, building ministries to others. We want to have deep, lasting, and meaningful relationships with people. But the Bible is clear that if we're not proceeding from the right foundation, if we're not proceeding from a true and lasting motivation, we'll never achieve those things. So what Paul is saying here is that his ministry, his long-term life's goal and aspiration to plant and build churches is founded on the right motivation. That's where he challenges the super apostles. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is basically saying they don't have the right motives I do, and here's why. I think principally Paul lays this out when we look back at verse 14. At the very beginning it says, For the love of Christ controls us. That's what Paul says is motivating him. Other translations say the love of Christ compels us. It's what pushes us towards others. Other translations say the love of Christ constrains us. It gives us the idea that that's what's binding all of Paul's efforts and energies together into one thrust to minister to the Corinthians. I think it's interesting here that Paul says that the love of God is his foundation for moving forward to minister to other people. It's not the love of the Corinthians that moves Paul to minister to the Corinthians. It's the love of God. God's love moves first. Paul moves second. I think it's important that Paul makes that distinction because if Paul were moved by his own affections towards the Corinthians, I think he would fail in his goal of establishing a church there. Because when things get hard, when people would slander him, when they would defame his character, when people would stop giving him the credit that he was due, his affections would run out for them, and he wouldn't have any desire to keep sharing his life and his ministry with them. Paul makes it clear why having the love of Christ be his initial motivation is important. In verse 12, Paul makes a distinction between two kinds of motivations, motivations that are concerned with what's in the heart and motivations that boast about outward appearance. 
Anyone who's ever watched a little kid bite into a lemon for the first time knows that something can look really sweet and tasty on the outside but be really sour on the inside. And that's what Paul is saying is that his works aren't veiled as something that looks good on the outside but has a self-serving and ulterior motive on the inside. It's something that is genuine. And it's genuine because it's rooted in the love of Christ. Paul isn't concerned with how other people see him. He makes this abundantly clear. Look back at verse 13 where he says that he doesn't even care if he seems crazy to other people. Everything that he did while he was around the Corinthians was either for God or for the Corinthians to know God. And I just have to say, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Paul what on earth he could have possibly been doing that made people think he was acting so crazy he needed to address it in this letter. The love of Christ isn't concerned with outward appearances. It's concerned with the salvation of the lost. And Paul knows that. That's why Paul is so confident when he makes this assertion that his work is founded on the right motivation because it's coming from the love of God. That's what's in his heart. He's so convinced of this that in verse 11, he even calls on God as his witness. He says, we're known to God. He's not hiding anything from God. He's not trying to sell them something. He's not trying to repackage the gospel and give them something that they don't understand what they're getting. No, he's being clear and plain to them. He says we're being so plain that God knows what we're doing, and I hope you do too. Paul is so particular here to distinguish his motives from the super apostles because he has a full view of who God is. And the, the full view that, God, that Paul has of who God is is laid out in verse 10. Look back at verse 10 where it says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is recognizing that at the end of time, Christians are going to have to come before God and give an account of their work and of their lives. This isn't where Christians are judged for their salvation. This isn't where they're judged on righteousness, but they're judged for what they've done with their lives. And this sounds like it could be pretty ominous. Paul acknowledges that at the beginning of verse 11 where he says, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. But this isn't anything new to the Corinthians. In his first letter, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes that each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So to answer the question, yes, Christians are judged. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that at the end of time, Christians will come before the judgment seat of God and our, our work and our lives will either be judged as good and we'll receive a reward for it, or it won't be judged as good and it'll be burned away at the judgment seat of Christ. You can almost think about it like trying to refine a piece of gold. When you first dig a piece of gold out of the ground, it's really big and chunky and it's covered in dirt and it may have some impurities in it. So an expert blacksmith would take that chunk of gold and put it in a furnace, and he would set the fire hot enough so that it burns off the dirt and so that it melts out the impurities. So what comes out at the end, yes, it's smaller, but it's pure gold. It's not covered in dirt, and all of the impurities that were in it are melted out. That's essentially what's going to happen to our lives and our work at the judgment seat of Christ. Anything that wasn't motivated by the love of God is going to be burned and lost I want to take a note here and say that even the ones who suffer a lot of loss will still be saved. This isn't about our salvation. And I think that this also is a good point, time to point out that this doesn't negate the fact that good works done for selfish motivations are still good works. 
I think a good example of this is when we think about preachers and pastors who are motivated by selfish reasons and lead a lot of people to Christ. This passage isn't delegitimizing that. It isn't saying that those people aren't true Christians. It doesn't take away from the fact that they've done that. But what it's saying is that those preachers and those evangelists who proceed from selfish motivations won't be rewarded for that at the judgment seat of Christ. Our culture loves outward appearances. And in a lot of ways, I think that has influenced our walk with God, especially when we think about what motivates our obedience. Paul is clear here that sometimes we're obedient and we do things because we want to be able to boast about our outward appearance. So that when we show up and we talk to our friends and our family and our community groups, not only do we get to brag about how good we've been obeying, we get, to put on a, we get other people to see us as better than we are and differently than we are. I think there are a few ways that we act obediently to bolster our outward appearance. I think that sometimes Christians will get really, really excited and want other people to think that they're really wise and really smart. And they'll go out and buy a systematic theology book or start reading every single article that can be found on Desiring God. And they'll go and study and find a way to put it into every conversation that they have and over-spiritualize every conversation. And it's not to enrich the conversation. It's not to bless the conversation. It's to be able to say, look how much theology I know. I think other times we swing too far to the opposite end of the spectrum and we put on a sort of false humility. We're so concerned with how other people see us that we want to make sure that people know that we're humble. We want to make sure that people don't think that we think too highly of ourselves. And we put on this false humility that ultimately is most concerned with outward appearance. When we're being falsely humble, we're really not trying to make people think less of us or think less about us. We're trying people to think more about us. Think, wow, they're just so humble. None of these things are inherently wrong. The virtue of humility isn't wrong. Learning and growing in theology isn't wrong, but if it's, these are the kinds of things that proceed from a genuine love of Christ, but when we're doing them and they're proceeding from a point of wanting others to see us differently than we are, we'll be burned away at the judgment seat of Christ. This sounds hard, but Christ invites us into a new life of daily obedience. Verse 15 makes this abundantly clear when it says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We must choose to daily die to ourselves and our selfish desires and live for Christ. What that means is that we stop caring about what we want, about how, how we want other people to see us, and we become concerned with how other people see Jesus. It becomes less about making ourselves famous, more about making Jesus famous becomes less about making people think highly of ourselves and more about making people think highly of Jesus. What that means is that before we do things like accept responsibility, jump into a group prayer, or anything like that, that we ask ourselves and consider why we're doing it. Are we proceeding from a place of genuine love for others? Or do we just want other people to see and think about us more? Sounds like a tall order, but we can be confident when we go before the judgment seat of Christ that our work won't be burned away and lost. As Christians, because we know God, because we relate to him and we have an understanding of who he is, we have a new motivation for our work. And God, in his great love for us, has given us the means to do this. And he's done this by making us a new creation. We're new creations with new motivations, moved and compelled by the love of God. When we consider what it means to fully know and understand and relate to God, 
we have to do so not just from an earthly point of view, but from a spiritual point of view. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 when he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul admits here that even he once thought about Jesus just from an earthly point of view. He didn't think about him as divine at all. And when we do that, we totally miss the point and who Jesus is. One theologian put it like this, that when we consider Jesus from just the superficial perspective of being just a man, he would seem more to be a common criminal, a venerable sage, or a subversive politician. But he will never appear to be the savior of the world. Verse 16 makes it clear that we can either think about Jesus just as a man, or we can think about him as divine, and we can take account of all that he said about who he was as true. And Paul and his contemporary Christians don't just see Jesus as a man because of the testimony laid out about him in verses 14 and 15. Look back at the passage. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the testimony that Christ lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, and that he was resurrected by the Father in glory. That's the testimony that Paul and his contemporary Christians are convinced of. That's the love of Christ that's rooted deeply in their heart, that God would send his son Jesus to die for our sins. And that's what brings us to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, we're new creations. In Christ, we find forgiveness for our sins. Where we once were far off and separated from God, identifying ourselves by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, we're pulled near and we're reconciled. The fact that this passage uses the word reconciled is so important because it describes our relational standing with God. We're not estranged. We're not enemies. We're not separated. We're reconciled. Verse 19 gives us a lot of insight into the nature of that reconciled relationship with God. First, it points out that we were the party in the wrong. It points out that we were the ones who separated ourselves from God. God didn't leave us. God didn't depart from us. We're the ones who willingly separated ourselves from God. Look at the passage where it says that God reconciled the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them. We're the there. It's our trespasses. God brought us near and God reconciled us by not counting our trespasses against us, by not counting our sins against us. Our sin offends God and separates us from him, and to deal with the separation, the love of God moved. God sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, and be resurrected. Verse 19 works together really well with verse 21 to explain how this happens. Verse 19 makes it clear that our trespasses, the punishment and the penalty for our sins, wasn't counted against us, but it had to be counted against somebody. Verse 21 explains what a lot of theologians call the great exchange. The great exchange is what might be the most grossly imbalanced trade that has ever happened in all of human history, where God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, to be an offering for our sin, 
that he could take the punishment for our sin. And in exchange for taking on our sin, Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's what verse 21 is saying when it says we become the righteousness of God. That phrase, the righteousness of God, such a beautiful phrase. Throughout the New Testament, especially when Jesus uses that same phrase in the Gospels, it refers to the things that God finds praiseworthy. When we're in Christ, God finds us praiseworthy. God delights in us. He's satisfied with us. It's incredible to think that that's true of us when we're found in Christ. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our imperfection. He sees the righteousness of Christ. I think for seasoned believers, it's really easy to read this passage, and it's really easy to hear the gospel message and think, that's cool, that's nice, it's good to hear again, it's Christianity 101, got it. But don't miss what this passage is saying about the nature of being a new creation. When we hear that phrase, new creation, our ears should perk up a little bit. Because that's the same kind of language that the Bible uses to describe everything that's coming back with Jesus. It describes the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. All that is summed up in the new creation. And in identifying us with the new creation, we're also identified in the hope that creation shares in in being restored and renewed. Romans 8, it says that, God has subjected creation in a hope to a longing for restoration. That's where we are. We're longing for restoration. We're longing for renewal. And our renewal isn't just a one-time event. Paul describes the nature of our renewal just a few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this about the nature of, the renewal, of our renewal in Christ. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's what our renewal is like. It's one degree at a time. It doesn't always have to look like these huge, life-altering, spiritual mountaintop experiences. It's one degree at a time. I love New Year's. Because it's a time where people are really introspective and welcome and open to, and willing to change. But I think if we just change our mindset a little bit from being about huge, sweeping, year-long reforms and just into incremental little steps, that will find so much more success. You can almost think about our renewal like this, like painting a landscape. At the beginning, you use a really big brush and you use big brush strokes to establish the sky, and maybe the grass and some mountains that might be in the back. But as you make the painting more detailed, you use a smaller brush, and you use smaller brush strokes. And each refining detail is less noticeable as an individual, but it makes the painting look more like the landscape it's trying to reflect. It's what it means to be transformed into the same image from one degree to another. It's the same painting, but it just looks more like what it's supposed to look like. You can also think about it like when we go to the eye doctor where the optometrist puts different lenses in front of our eyes that bring the image into sharper and sharper focus until finally it's clear. This process of renewal is called sanctification. One theologian describes sanctification like this. Within the dawning of the new creation, the revelation of God's glory among a restored people results in a life of growing obedience by the power of the Spirit. That's what it means to be renewed one degree of glory at a time. That's what it means to be sanctified. 
It's to grow in obedience to God. It's about the moment by moment, day by day decisions to accept God's grace to be obedient. And a great place to learn how to be obedient is in his word. It's full of him telling us how we should be living our lives. When we're sanctified, we grow in our moment by moment obedience to the Lord so that we look more like the image that we're supposed to reflect, who is Jesus. This passage leaves us with something really interesting, a specific step of obedience that we're supposed to be taking. Verses 18 and 19 are almost parallel in structure. First, they talk about how we've been reconciled in Christ, and then they both talk about how we've been entrusted and given the message and the ministry of reconciliation. They're both the exact same in structure. We've been reconciled, we're given the message and ministry of reconciliation. And this passage uh, gives us this explanation and then gives us a very clear identity statement. We're clued into this by the therefore at the beginning of verse 20. You know how whenever you read the Bible and there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for? Well, the therefore in verse 20 connects us to the reality that our reconciliation and being entrusted with the message of reconciliation makes us ambassadors for God. This passage lays out that when we're new creations, we have new motivations, and we're able to carry out our new God-given mission to be ambassadors. This passage tells us that our new mission as new creations, motivated by the love of God, is to be an ambassador. In the same way that the United States has an ambassador that would go to China, and conduct business and diplomacy with the Chinese government on behalf of the United States, we are God's representatives here on earth. We're representatives from the government of God. As a new creation, we've been entrusted with a message from that government, that we can be restored, that we can be reconciled, that we can have a right relationship with God in Christ. This passage leaves us with an action point and an identity statement. And the action point is pretty straightforward. It says it right there at the end of verse 20. Be reconciled. I love that it says be reconciled and not reconcile yourselves to Christ or go figure it out with God or go get right with God. The phrase be reconciled is totally passive on our part. There's nothing for us to do there other than to allow ourselves to be reconciled and drawn in and pulled in by God. To have faith to be found in Christ. That's what it means to be reconciled. I love that verse 20 also has the word implore you on behalf of Christ. Because yes, while Paul is the one talking to them and imploring, the initial imploring doesn't come from Paul. As an ambassador, he carries the message of the one who sent him. God is the one imploring, pleading with us to be reconciled to him. God has a heart for us. God delights in us. God desires to be with us. He is pleading and imploring that we would be reconciled to him. It doesn't matter how sinful we are. It doesn't matter how much we've separated and how far we've trespassed against God. Verse 16 points out that we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh doesn't matter what we've done in the flesh, but we can be found and reconciled to God. Verse 16 also brings us from the action point to the identity statement in the passage. 
the fact that we are ambassadors, that we go and we tell everyone, we tell anyone who will listen about who God is and what he's done. It's not a job for select professional evangelists. And I think when we hear that word evangelism, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Kind of tense up and, ugh, that's that thing I'm supposed to do. But I think we only have those kinds of feelings and we only have that response when we're not motivated by the right thing. Paul is clear here that the only lasting and biblical foundation for evangelism is to be saturated in the truth of the gospel. If we're evangelizing out of obligation or out of guilt or because someone else told me to, then we will never find a reason or a desire that's strong enough to compel us to evangelize and witness to others. And we don't have to be worried about evangelizing and witnessing and saying the right thing. God tells us that he'll help us and give us the right words, but we're really just talking about what God is doing in our lives. We don't have to worry about packaging the message correctly because we're just talking about how God has been relating with us, that he's reconciled us and brought us near. We don't have to worry about whether or not it's our place to say something or not. As ambassadors, we have positions of authority. We have a message that we carry. The U.S. ambassador to China isn't afraid to tell the Chinese government how the United States feels about it and its decisions. In the same way, we as ambassadors shouldn't be afraid and shouldn't feel uncomfortable when the opportunity presents itself to share our faith. Paul will later say in the same letter in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians that the only thing that's limiting the Corinthians in their own evangelism and in their own witness is their affections. Paul says that their heart is too small, that they need to make room in their heart for other people. Let's be people who have room in our hearts for others and who desire for others to come and to know God. Being an ambassador doesn't mean walking into every conversation with guns blazing, ready to over-spiritualize every conversation, ready to crack and snap at a moment's notice. But the bottom line is this. Are we living with eyes for the lost? Do we believe that the church is God's plan A for evangelism and that there is no plan B? We're God's primary ambassadors. We're the first ones sent. And you can be sure that as ambassadors, there is work where they are sent. Wherever you are, there is work to be done. And you can be confident of that. This passage makes it clear that we need to have the right motivation for what we do with our lives. Because as Christians, we know who God is. We have a right understanding of who he is. And we have a new motivation and that new motivation compels us and pushes us into our God-given call and new mission to be ambassadors. And why do we do it? We do it because one has died for all. Jesus died for us, now we live for him. The ones who once were dead and now live, live for the one who died once for all. We give our lives to Christ because he so quickly and willingly and readily gave his life for us. Let's pray that God would help us do this. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that you would make us new creations, that by your grace and by your mercy, you would restore us to relationship with yourself and your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you would love us so much, God, that you would move. You would come to us first when we had wandered and separated ourselves from you. 
God, in your great love for us, you came to us. And God, in doing so, I pray that we would root that truth deeply into our hearts this year. God, that that would be what compels us in everything that we do. God, would we be so confident of it that we would call on you as our witness that we're moved by your love. God, would your love move us to other people? God, this year presents people and and challenges and hurts that we don't know what they're coming yet. We don't know what they are, but God, you do. I ask that you would prepare us for that. God, I ask that you would give us eyes and a heart for people who don't know you. Father, would you keep us ready, keep us vigilant for work and for ministry. God, would you crush our heart? Would you crush our our, uh, fears in our hearts? God, would you crush the selfishness in our heart that desires for us to be known? God, would we be excited to live and ready to live for you, for your fame, for your name? Pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.